Good morning, everybody. Please, please take a seat. Today's a good morning, right? Praise the Lord. It's Resurrection Sunday. We have so much to be thankful for and optimistic and have so much hope as Christians today. It's going to be a good morning this morning. After the service, we've even got pancakes. So we've got risen Lord Jesus and we've got pancakes. It's like this perfect combination coming together. Praise God. And so thank you for your patience with us. I know um, the seating is a little bit different. We couldn't control the weather. And so it wasn't great, you know, to be sitting outside. So there's tables and chairs dotted about. So thank you very much for, you know, just understanding uh, our situation. So thank you for that. But this morning, we've got something else to be grateful for. I think one of the greatest miracles, if not the greatest miracle that we can experience today is when someone commits their life to Jesus Christ. When they discover the Lord Jesus for themselves and that indwelling life of Christ just enters into them. It's the greatest miracle, I think, today. And this morning, we have the opportunity to witness someone declaring their love for Jesus and dedicating their life through baptism. And so we've got, we're going to see a baptism this morning. Now, if you're new here, and you're wondering, what on earth's going on? Why have they got like a, a hot tub on the stage? If you don't know what baptism is, baptism is this wonderful um, symbol that we have. It's a wonderful sign to declare that we love Jesus. And it's a way that people are able to uh, just say, I want to start my life again. My life was going in this direction. And I, I, I want to repent. I want to follow Jesus and turn around and go this way. And so we baptize people to show this. And so baptism is symbolic. You know, when, when, you, when we plunge people under the water, we're saying that our old life is gone. And then we will rise again. You know, our, our, our sins are, are symbolically you know, forgiven because of what Christ has done. And we have new life and new hope in the way we go. And hey, this weekend, it's very similar. Christ died. He, 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 you know, he was buried. And then he rose again. It's like baptism, right? And so we have new life in Christ and we have new life today with Lucas. So I'm going to hand over to these guys here. Thank you. Uh, good morning. This, uh, my name is Alicia and I'm the director of youth ministry here. And this is Lucas. And Lucas is choosing to get baptized today. So I'm going to hand the mic to him. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to let him share his testimony. Hello. <laughs> um, okay. Um, I'm going to read my testimony now. So, Before the trip to Guatemala, my faith with God was more assumed by me than real. I thought that because I went to church, I read the Bible from time to time, and I was brought up in a Christian family. It meant that I was most likely already Christian and a believer of God. My mindset wasn't that I choose to be with him. It was that I have to be with him. I have to believe in him, and then maybe I'll be fine. So you see, with this mindset, I was assuming my faith in God rather than fully trusting in Him to guide me to the right thing. Because of me assuming my faith and trusting in Him, I was not confident in letting go of the things holding me back or even just stepping up when I need to and actually volunteering to help out when it felt right. Also, I wasn't open to my feelings at all. You see, my parents separated at the end of last summer, which broke our family apart. 
We were angry, sad, and dishonest. Through this, I, and so has my siblings, felt a massive sense of anger, pressure, and a lot of confusion against our parents, which led to some degree of depression, which then led to worse grades and began to take us further away from God, as things just seemed to be falling apart rapidly. Looking back, I had no faith in God guiding me to do the right thing. I didn't feel like anything would really help, so I began to judge and assume the worst of my family members. Even though I was hiding it, it was there. Assuming and judging, Lynn led to self-pride and my ego started to grow. When I got notice of a missions trip, I remember wanting to go so bad. I saw it like a break from all this pressure and hate I was feeling at the time. So I got on Zoom call with Alicia, which everyone had to do if they wanted to get on the team, and I decided that I was gonna choose, uh, I was gonna say what I assumed to be the valid reasons to go on a big trip. Um, I didn't know this at the time, but apparently Elise had a gut feeling that something special was planned for me by, the, by God. So I ended up getting a notification I'm in. Middle. Okay. Okay. After lots of paperwork, reading, and Zoom calls, I, the day finally came to leave for Guatemala. I was over the moon on going, so excited. Going there, I thought that we were going to help some people in need, have some fun, then go back home, and it's probably going to be quick. Well, I couldn't be further from the truth. Being there without my brother and sister forced me to include myself in things I would never do before. As I could muster up, muster up enough confidence to include myself in things and step up. Once we were in Guatemala and started making our way to a cool, I would have never thought what would happen while we were there. In a cool, the first thing I noticed is how much happier and joyful everyone was than I thought. I thought that because of poverty, they would be more sad than happy, and that I need, I need to help them. <laughs> um, I didn't know that I needed their help just as much as they needed my help. Uh, the presence of God in this small community was so big. It was a feeling I hadn't felt in a long time, and it truly opened my eyes. From coming into the trip, not confident in letting God guide me, to seeing how joyous everyone was in a cool with such strong trust in the presence of God, there was so amazing. Um, after a couple of days, I was touched. I was touched because it had been so long since I gave my full trust in God. I felt a sense of peace knowing God was in control, and I could stop worrying and focus on being present. Um, on Wednesday, after the day was done, I just sat there in my seat um, at a restaurant, processing the fact that I hadn't actually had a real relationship with God until this trip. I was mad at myself, but I was also so happy I found him through the trip and through the people in it. So I was sitting there quietly until we had to go back to the hotel, and while we were walking back, Alicia pulled me aside because she noticed I was being more quiet than normal. She asked me how I was doing, and I started to cry. I started to cry because I was holding back so much emotion and finally felt safe to talk. I told how I felt before and, I, and how I can confidently say I'm walking with God. From then on, I could continue to feel God's presence. Oh. I could continue to feel God working in me. I felt blessed to have been part of the trip, and I have learned so much about my faith. Um, Philippians 4, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Jeremiah 1 verse 9, um, then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. Thanks.
Okay, Lucas, do you believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose again? I do. Do you believe that by baptizing here, you're professing he, he is Lord of your life and the Savior to rule your heart? I do. All right, Lucas. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I baptize you. <laughs> Lord, I just uh, thank you for Lucas, God. I thank you for how you saw him before he walked this earth. And you knew um, what that trip meant and what it means just now to be able to walk with you, God. I pray that you protect him and guard him and that he will be sensitive to your spirit, aware of how you are working in his life. And we just, um, as a church here, God, we celebrate him and celebrate what you are doing in his life. In your name. Amen. Thank you, that for the reading there this morning. Can you think of any milestones that have defined or affected your life? Like day-changing events. Perhaps that day when you stood up to the school bully when you were six years old in the school playground. And you think, I'm not going to stand up to any more bullies again. Or perhaps the day you set up for university and it kind of like the day you left home and that kind of marked a new direction in your life. Or perhaps the day you got married and all of a sudden, you know, everything changed. Or perhaps becoming a Christian. Or even your first child. Perhaps you've got other examples in your own life, those kind of milestones that really affected and changed your life. But this weekend, we joined Christians all over the world to celebrate the most monumental weekend in all of history. We celebrate the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the thing that really um, gets me excited is a few weeks ago, Alana said that, you know, we are the last a group of people to, to kind of like close the day of a worship. We're kind of closing the day. Back home in England, they, they kind of did what we're doing eight hours ago. And this morning, we're kind of like, we're closing the day in worship to God. We are the last ones. We are, we are the ones who are finishing the day. And I think, wow, isn't that amazing? The thing that really inspires me by this weekend is that it didn't just change one life. It, didn't, it changed all of lives. It changed all the lives in all of history. Jesus' death and resurrection changed all of time. And anywhere we look at the time continuum, you see what Christ did has affected everything. That one weekend. There's a Canadian pastor called James Allen Francis and he once wrote this, all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that were ever built, all of the parliaments that ever sat and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as has that one solitary life. And I would agree, what Jesus Christ did that weekend 
has affected all of life. And this morning, I want us to start by looking at Matthew 27 and the death of Jesus Christ. So if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to keep asking this. If you've got your Bibles, you got your Bibles this morning? Get them out. Turn them on. Matthew 27. And it looks at, I want to just start looking at the, the death and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. To die on a cross would have been a grisly death, which the Romans adopted from the Carthaginians. And um, Cicero, uh, a Roman statesman, he said that the cross was so brutal that it should not even be talked about by Roman citizens. That's how just painful and difficult it would have been to witness this event. And the crucifixion of Christ would have meant different things to different people. If we see here in Matthew 27, verse 32, as they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene, that's kind of Libya, modern-day Libya, north of Africa, named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. The cross of Christ would have meant different things to different people. For, si for Simon, it would have been an inconvenience, perhaps. This guy has come, he's traveled all the way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, and he's in there, he's the crowd watching what's going on, and all of a sudden he's given this cross beam to carry. So for the, the crucifixion for Simon would have been perhaps a hindrance. Like, oh man, I've got to carry a cross up this hill. For the Jewish people, it would have been something else. They were looking for the Messiah. So a week ago, they're celebrating the entry of, of Christ into Jerusalem, and now they're crying out, crucify him. They, they, he hasn't met up to their expectations. For Pilate, it would have been just an easy way out to crucify Jesus. They've got... The, the Jewish people, given, they don't want the Romans there. They're giving Pilate a lot of pressure. They want them out for, for Pilate. He's like, okay, just, just crucify him. It gives me a bit of peace for a moment. For Christ's friends, verse 34, it says, they offered Jesus wine and drink mixed with gall. Well, gall would have like been like a kind of a nosinogenic, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. For Jesus' friends, it would have been just a sad time. They're, they're losing a, a teacher, a, a friend, a family member. They want to ease his pain. Perhaps by easing his pain, it's easing their pain. And for the soldiers, it was just an easy way to get some clothes. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. But for us today, what does the crucifixion mean for you. What does it mean for you today? The cross of Christ and his resurrection means so much. And I want to focus a little bit this morning on verses 45 and 46. It says, from the sixth hour, that's like noon, 12 o'clock noon, until the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama shabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
verse 45, the darkness just comes over for those three hours. There's this unnatural darkness. And it covered the land. And the Bible doesn't say how that happened, but I'm going to imagine that God allowed it to happen. And it's as if if creation itself was groaning in the sadness of Christ's crucifixion. Understanding the gravity of what's going on. But then in verse 46, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it would seem so strange. It would seem a strange thing to say, wouldn't it? That Jesus Christ is saying to God, why? Why are you... Why have you left me? Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, would cry out like this, seems alien to me. How can the Father, the author of every good and perfect gift, who is himself love and full of grace and mercy, turn his back on his one and only Son in an hour like this? To leave him alone, to die on a cross, for crimes he did not even commit. Just allow that seriousness to just, just dwell in us for a moment. And Christ cries out, Eloi, my God. He doesn't even refer to him as father anymore. He says, my God, why does Jesus do that? Is, is Jesus questioning God? No, not at all. Jesus is not questioning God. But what we see here is that Jesus Christ is quoting Old Testament. He's quoting Psalm 22. Psalm 22 says this. It says, my God, my God. Psalm 22 verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Psalm 22 comes from David, King David. You see, it's this, this passage here that we're looking at, Psalm 22, is an expression of deep anguish, of deep sorrow, of deep pain. David's life wasn't exactly easy. It wasn't free from fear. And there were times when David was sought, his life was in danger. You know, his son, Absalom, or um, Saul, were trying to kill him. King David was at times living in a cave, running for his life. And he's just filled with grief in moments. David says in 1 Samuel 20 verse 3, Surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only one step between me and death. So David is gripped with sorrow in his life. And it was natural therefore for David to feel distant from God. You know, in our life, do we ever feel distant from God? When we're going through sorrow, when we're going through heartache or bereavement or we don't understand what's going on in life, does God ever feel distant? When there's problems in our marriage or with our kids or our job, does God ever feel distant for you? Well, let me encourage you. He's not. God is there. If God feels distant, the chances are we've made him distant. Our situations have overwhelmed us so much that we don't even spend time with God anymore. And it's in those moments, in our darkest, deepest moments, that we need to run to God. This is what David's sensing. He's sensing. He's living in a cave. He's being persecuted. God feels distant, but he's not. 
to contrast this, Joshua chapter 1, verse 5. God says to Joshua, he says this, just as I was with Moses, so I would be with you. I will not fail you, nor forsake you. And I think that promise that God gives to Joshua is a promise that he gives to each and every one of us today. I am with you. I will not forsake you. I will be with you. Lucas, as you start out your life in, you know, baptism, what a wonderful day. God is there with you. Today, you're on a high. You're on top of the mountaintop, right? Everything's good. You know, he's been baptized. There's pancakes afterwards. You know, it's like life is good. But there'll be times when you get off the mountain and you've got to get in the valley and life is tough. God is with you. We need to remember that. God was with David regardless. But as Jesus Christ nears his death on that cross, in his humanity, Jesus actually senses the spiritual absence of the Father, God. For the first time in all of eternity, Christ felt alone. Why? Because Jesus was there as a substitute sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, for my sins, for your sins. So the righteous heavenly father had to judge him fully according to the sins that we were responsible for. The wrath of God was poured out on his sinless son and Jesus became sin for those who believe in him. Habakkuk declared of God, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. God turned his back on his son, on Jesus when, when he was on the cross because he just couldn't bear to look at sin. And at that moment of taking the sin of the world upon himself, at that moment, as Jesus hung on the cross, God forsake his son in his humanity. I think as I'm saying those words, I mean, even, am, I, am I right in saying that? It seems so serious. That's the seriousness of sin. And that's what Christ was willing to do because he loves us so much. Many people are sad on Good Friday, the darkest day in history. But I rejoice. I think it's such a good day that Christ died he took the, the sin, the blame, because he loves me. And I rejoice on that good Friday morning. And wasn't it a good service on Friday for those who went? And this shouldn't be a surprise to us, what Christ did on the cross. Because the Old Testament had been pointing to this for so many years. The theme of substitution has been building up and it rises to a crescendo at the point of, of Christ on the cross. You see, in order for people of God in the Old Testament to avoid the curse of God, they would have to celebrate the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement was a day when they all, everybody came together and they would sacrifice a ram in the tent, in the grounds, in the camp, and then they would release a ram the ram would be released into the community, a scapegoat 
That's where we get the expression from. A scapegoat would be released into the wilderness. Now, what does that mean? The, the ram that was sacrificed in the camp was one that was sacrificed for the forgiveness of sins. But the one cast out was to remove sins. They wanted to get rid of the sins. They wanted to cast the sin out of the camp into the wilderness. And that's what the little scapegoat did, symbolizing we want to forgive sins, we want to cast out sins as well. But this was repeated every single year. Jesus did not cease to be God, but for a time felt the intimacy of the Father no more. He was cast out as a substitutionary sacrifice so that this day of atonement would never have to be done ever again and that we could be entered into the right relationship with God. The atonement just means at one with God. We were made right with God by what Christ has done, verse 50 of Matthew 27. And when Jesus had cried out in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. When he died on that cross, he took all of our sins. And today, if we put our trust in him, we know that our sins are forgiven. But it doesn't end there, right? If it ended there, that'd be pretty amazing, but it doesn't. That's only half of the story. Today is resurrection Sunday after all. The Bible says this in Luke 24, 46. This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and the repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name. And 1 Corinthians 5 and 15, 1 to 6 says this. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I've preached to you, otherwise you believe in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he raised on the third day according to scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and to the 12 and to many, many, many others as well. Jesus is dying and his resurrection affects everything. It affects our past, it affects our present, and it affects our future. How does it affect our past? Well, 1 Corinthians 15, 16 to 20 says, if Christ were not raised from the dead, our faith is futile, but we are still in our sins. We are unforgiven. For those who have died have perished, but Christ was raised from the dead. Christ rising from the dead is such a guarantee that our sins have been forgiven, that what Christ did on the cross is guaranteed. It tells me that Christ is God. The resurrection of Christ is the center of the Christian faith. Because Jesus rose from the dead as he promised, we know that what he said is true. He is God. And because he rose, we have certainty that our sins are forgiven. But yeah, you might be asking, why? Why did Jesus have to die? Why do my sins need forgiven? You see, in the beginning, when God created everything, God created the universe, God created the Garden of Eden. It says in the Bible, it was good, right? When God created you, uh, humanity, Adam and Eve, it was good. 
and it was pure. And Adam and Eve were pure and it was good. And it's symbolizing like this. this I've got this tissue here and it's just pure and blameless. And humanity was like that. They were pure and they were able to walk with God in the garden and it was good. Heaven and earth were one and it was paradise. Imagine that. Imagine being able to walk hand in hand with God every day. Just like in a garden, just like walking around, it's good. And God said to Adam and Eve, you can do anything you want to look after the land, name the animals. And it was good. But I, he says, you can't, there's one thing you can't do. Don't eat of the tree of fruit, uh, of, of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of that tree. And they did. And when they ate of that tree and turned their back on God, it was like this big blemish was just put all of a sudden. That one act, they're no longer pure and blameless in front of God. And the problem with sin is it separates us from God. We know that sin separates us from our creator and we're designed to walk in fellowship with our Lord but sin makes it impossible. You see, when sin is like this, God can't tolerate it, and it separated us from our maker. You see, Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means every human being has failed to meet the perfect standards of God's goodness and righteousness. We fail because we do things our own way. We choose to do things our own way. And even more seriousness is the consequences of sin. Romans 6.23, it says that the consequences of sin is spiritual death. And that's the opposite of God's plan in our lives. But the thing is, we keep sinning. Every time we kind of do things our own way, we kind of sin and our lives look like this. God wanted us to be pure and blameless and spotless, but sin makes us like this before God. And, you know, that's our sinful nature. But then, you know, we get angry. Some like, old woman cuts us up on the road. And then you kind of get a bit of road rage. And then, you know, there's a, you know, more blemish in our lives. And you think, oh, man. You know, or I don't know, your husband, he burns the turkey on Easter Sunday. And you think, oh, man. And you, you have a good, you throw, you throw your kind of frying pan at him or something like that. You know, and it's just kind of like, our lives look like this for many reasons, right? And you think, do you know what? I can, I can sort this out. And we try and clean ourselves up and you say, do you know what? If I, if, I, if I go to church, if I go to church on Easter Sunday, just once a year, I'm going to be right with God, right? I'm going to be good. And then we go to church and we try and clean ourselves. Oh, wait a minute. Didn't work, did it? Is that clean? We try and do things to clean ourselves up. If I give money to the poor, if I give all my cash to the poor, then that would be good. And then we try and clean ourselves up. And then, is that, is that clean? Not really, is it? And then we do all sorts of things to try and get right with God. It doesn't work. And it just ends up being a big mess. 
But the good news is, our sins can be forgiven. Matthew 27, verse 37. It says, above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. He had this charge, and it was called a titulus, and it was a sign. And he put, when, when someone was going to get crucified, they would put a sign on top, uh, around your neck, and then they would hang that on the cross. And then that sign was just to say what you'd done. So, you know, you, you're a robber, you're a thief. And so he'd say on the titulus, this, this guy's a robber, and put it on the cross. Or you're a murderer, and they'd put the sign on your neck, and when you get crucified, they'd hang it on the cross, he's a murderer. So when you went around the city and you see all these crucifixes, then you'd see, oh, he's a murderer. I'd better not murder anybody, otherwise that would be me. What is Christ's crime? He's the king of the Jews. That was the crime of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul even mentions it in Colossians 2, 13 to 14. Colossians 2, 13 to 14. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the written code and with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to our cross. When Jesus Christ died on that cross, our titulus, our sins, our, what we're guilty of was taken from us and it was nailed to a cross. So understand, Jesus linked our forgiveness with his death. He taught that he was going to die in our place. The innocent would die for the guilty. He would pay for our sins on that cross making our forgiveness, our pardon possible. His atoning sacrifice is the grounds on which God is able to forgive all of our sins and give us new life and to restore us back with God. And so that's what Jesus Christ did. When we trust in God, let's get some more sin in there. Look at that. That's what our lives are like before God. If we try and do our things in our own strength, they'll never work. But if we put our trust in, if we put our trust in Christ and ask for him to forgive our sins. We are made new once again before God. Praise God, right? We are made new. That's what Jesus Christ has done. When we put our trust in him and ask him to forgive us for our sins, we are made new once again. We are made right. We are atoned. We are made at one with God. And that's the beautiful thing. So this is the good news that no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, we can be forgiven and be made right with God again. It's simple. Put your trust in Jesus. Just like Lucas did today. I don't want to follow the world. I want to follow you, Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't stop there. It's only half the gospel, right? I put my trust in Jesus. But we still live on earth. Christ, our past has been forgiven, but he affects our present as well. Because Jesus rose again, he now lives. He represents us before God and the spirit of Jesus lives in us today. Look at that. He's like molding us. If we trust in Jesus, the Spirit of God lives in us. John Stott says this 
It is no good giving me a play like Hamlet or King Lear and telling me to write a play like that. Shakespeare could do it, but I can't. And it's no good showing me a life like that of Jesus and then telling me to live like that. Jesus could do it, but I can't. But if the genius of Shakespeare could come in, live in me, then I could write plays like that. And if the spirit of Jesus could live in me, then I could live a life like that. To have him as an example is not enough. We need him living inside of us as our savior. Does that make sense? We can try and do our faith, but it won't work. The spirit of God living in us, like a pen needs ink and a, and a car needs gas, we need the transforming presence of Christ in us every day. So Christ affects our past. The living Christ, he rose again, lives in us. The spirit of God lives in us today. And if we truly love Jesus Christ and Christ lives in us, then as we go around life and as we tell other people about Jesus too, we are able to affect others around us. And the sin can be once again cleaned from others too. So not only does Christ forgive us, but we are the hands and feet of Jesus Christ and we can affect other people. We are his ambassadors today and we can make a difference. Each and every one of us can make a difference. How amazing is Jesus Christ? Is he good? But he affects our future as well. And this is the assurance and the hope we have in Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus tells us that sin, since he rose again and conquered death, our eternity is secure. When we put our trust in Jesus, we have an assurance that when our earthly bodies pass away, we will have something way better in heaven. Jesus Christ, he affects our past, our present and our future. Our past sins have been forgiven. We are empowered in the present and our future is certain. This is the hope that we have at Easter time. Jesus Christ died on that cross. He took the punishment of all of the world. He suffered not just physical agony, but I think he suffered so much more because he loves you. Put your trust in Jesus. This is why Easter is so, so celebrated. As Christians, we have so much hope and so much assurance. So if you ever feel God is distant, just remind yourself for a moment. We put our trust in Jesus, our past, our present, and our future have all been dealt with by Jesus Christ. We're going to take communion now. We're going to invite our service to come down. It's not a big all-together communion. We're going to sing a song. But if you want to take communion and thank Jesus for what he's done, then you're welcome to. I encourage you to. The band are going to sing. We're going to have communion. And then we're going to go for pancakes. If you want to sit in your chair and worship God, do that. But if you want to thank Jesus Christ for what he's done, I do welcome you to come to the front as well. And thank him with the bread and the wine. Let's stand and worship.